All right. Good morning, Providence. It really is good to be uh, here with you guys again, wherever here is for you. Uh, I'm glad that you've decided to, to join in and to, uh, to study along with us this morning. We're going we're gonna to keep going in our series, and we're going to pick up where we left off, sort of, where we left off last week, uh, but we're going to let it kind of take us somewhere completely different than we did last week. Last week, we looked at the disciples, uh, and we talked about the, the Beatitudes and how that would have been such a, an odd type of teaching for them. We're going to go in a completely different direction this week. We're going to launch out of that same place, and we're in this uh, series, Curveball. Curveball, uh, sometimes life takes an unexpected turn. For obvious reasons, it seems like something that would fit for us, uh, and it does fit for where our life is, because nobody, nobody expects what we're dealing with right now, but, but here we are, you know, several weeks in, trying to figure out what life looks like. And the whole premise of this series is that a curveball is generally considered to be uh, something that's unexpected and something that makes your life harder. That's how curveballs work in baseball. They're unexpected and they are designed to make it harder for the batter to get a hit. We understand that concept and that's how we've approached this series so far uh, with each of our different texts. And it's, it's kind of how we've come at it saying, all right, this is what one person expected. Things got a lot harder by this thing that was not expected. And here's how God used that thing that was not, uh, that was not expected. And uh, I, I, said, uh, I said last week that you could open up the scriptures to almost any page in the Bible and you would find someone that's dealing with a story that's a curveball, that's dealing with something where life is not expected. And, 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 it, and it's fine that we've approached it in the way that we have so far, but I want to flip it a little bit this morning. And the analogy might fall apart uh, just a little bit, but I want, to, uh, I want to flip it because what I want to be able to talk about is sometimes life goes in ways that aren't expected. And when that happens, that's actually a really good thing. It's not necessarily just something that makes life harder. Sometimes the curveball can actually make life better. Sometimes it's something that brings joy. Sometimes it's the most unexpected thing that brings us the most joy. It doesn't always have to come with pain. Often it does, but sometimes it comes with joy and celebration. Sometimes it comes with a welcomed new direction in life. All kinds of different ways in which God can work whenever it's not expected. In God's economy, it can be the curveballs that become the cornerstones of the best moments of our lives. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to talk about it, I think maybe with a little bit more of a positive view on it, but still the same idea of God working in ways that we should not or do not expect. And so what I want to do is I want to read the principle where Jesus teaches us this idea, and then I I want to kind of go and see how it plays out. So we're going to read the Beatitudes again, and then we're going to go to a story in the Old Testament. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 2 through 12 is where we will start this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verse 2. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So I read this again this morning. Honestly, we probably could have started somewhere else, but I wanted to read it again this morning because it helps kind of reset our minds this morning to this reality. It, it, and it's a, it's a reset that's constantly needed for all of us, and I know it's one that, that I need every day, but especially right now during this time because we are so hardwired to pursue everything that flows in the exact opposite direction of what Jesus teaches there. It is ingrained within us. Our culture uh, promotes it, and and even just our own innate uh, sense says, go in this direction, and Jesus says, no, 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 you should be going in this direction. But if we're not careful, we can read that and we can think, you know what, that's some good religious teaching. That's some good religious teaching, and I can kind of pick and choose, and I'll apply those where I see fit, and, and, and maybe there's some wisdom in there for me at some point in my life. And then we can kind of go on with things, and we can, we, we, we can forget really what this looks like, because in our, in our minds, this is Jesus on the side of a hill teaching to a bunch of disciples a long time ago. It's not real life. It's religious kind of wise sayings that you can apply or not apply. It's just not real life. Because real life right now looks like getting up to do the same thing over and over again that you did yesterday. It's waking up to the same problems. It's waking up to the same failures. It's waking up to the same frustrations, the same kind of aimless wondering. It's it's waking up to uh, real life problems, real life bank accounts that aren't full, and uh, real life kids that don't listen, and real life pandemics, and real life hospital stays and it looks like trying to figure out what in the world we're going to have for dinner again tonight because you've got to figure out something again for dinner it looks like the mundane and the boring and the i would say the routine but there is no routine right now it's just it's just there it's just there it's the mundane but sometimes as hard as it can be to find jesus there in the mundane so often that is right where god shows up in the everyday frustrations and kind of normalcy of what this has become and what life typically is when things are just kind of going along god works in the mundane so often so I want you to turn with me now back to 1 Samuel, go back to the Old Testament. We're going to be in the book of 1 Samuel, and we're, we're, going, to, we're going to talk for a couple of weeks uh, about, uh, about a guy that if you've been around church at all, you've heard of, and even if you haven't, you've probably heard of uh, on some level. We're going to talk about this guy, David, who would become the king of Israel. It's the story of David being chosen to be king. And if you've been around church, and if you've been in Sunday school, especially as a kid, you've probably heard this story. You may be very familiar with it. It's a good one for us to read, and it's a good story to cover in Sunday school. But I think sometimes we can kind of get lost on what's trying to be uh, communicated in all of this story. So I'm going to read uh, a few verses out of 1 Samuel. I'm going to kind of just read the story of what happens, and then I want to make some applications uh, to our life uh, based on, on some of what we see here. So 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 6. Uh, this is when Samuel has come. He's, he, he's shown up at 
at, at David's house and his family's house, and he's begun to uh, call in all of uh, Jesse's sons from the field and says, all right, I'm here to pick a king. God sent me to this place. Let's see the sons that you've got. And then in verse 6, when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on his height uh, of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called uh, Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's out keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for he will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. And now he was ruddy, and he had beautiful eyes, and he was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. It's a good story. You can understand why people like this story. You know, Samuel shows up, the brothers, the, the older, kind of strapping, tall guys that seem to fit the bill for who should be a king, they, they show up and, and they kind of one by one parade in front of Samuel, and Samuel's like, no, 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 that's not the guy, no, that's not the guy, no, that's not the guy. They get through the end of the line, there's nobody else there, there's no one else in the room, there's no more sons, and, and Samuel looks at Jesse and he's like, is this it? This doesn't make any sense to me, because God said, sent me here. And I've gone through all of these, all of these, uh, all of your sons, but none of these are the, are the guy. I, I don't think I made a mistake there. Something, something's got to be off here. And Jesse says, "Well, there is actually one, but I don't think you're going to want to talk to him. He's the youngest. He's not a big kid. He's, I don't think you're going to want. I don't think you're going to want David. Uh, but we'll bring him in anyway. So as soon as he walks in, Samuel sees him and says, that's the guy. That's the guy that God wants for the job. It's a good story. You can see why it gets told so often. It's encouraging because after all, who among us has not felt something like David, the one that's off tending to the sheep, completely forgotten, that you could just disappear and no one would even notice. You're not even considered for the promotion. You're not even considered for the relationship. You're not even considered for anything that matters. You're just kind of there. And so long as you're just kind of there, you just keep trucking along. We can all relate to David on some level. And since it is so uh, relatable, it's easy for us just to be like, you know what? Uh, I, I get this. I, I get what David's doing or, or, or this David guy. I understand his situation. And th- that's an encouraging story for me to read, to know that David is not forgotten, that David has indeed been chosen. We like a good underdog. An underdog is David and Goliath. Like we, we, we borrow straight from this guy to talk about and describe an underdog because David is so small and David has such a, a minimal chance. And we're not even going to talk about David and Goliath today, but it all still kind of flows out of the, the same thing. We all love that story. And why do we love that story? Because we can relate to it. Because we know what it's like. And it's a story that that this underdog story kind of finds some roots here in this part. He's so overlooked and he's so unlikely that his dad doesn't even call him in. 
Can you imagine? I'm sure you can. I think I can. Can you imagine the offense that David must have taken to this? That he would not even be considered, that he would be so dismissed from this position that all the other brothers would be called in and he would be sent to tend the sheep. They would be done with their day, day's labors because they needed to go meet Samuel. But Samuel instead would have, or, but David instead would have to pick up the slack and do what all of his brothers could not do. You know he had to be complaining under his breath. You know he had to be whining and, and being uh, frustrated as they went walking in and he stayed out in the field with the sheep. Yet he did, and that's where he was. You know it has to bother him that his brothers seemed to be such an obvious better choice than he was. And so we could stop there and we could go with that part of the story and that is certainly enough. It's enough to paint David in that light as the underdog and as the one who doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But it's really even bigger than that. We need to go back in the story just a little bit. We need to back up just a little bit more. We looked at the beginning of this series, Curveball. We looked at the beginning uh, in the book of Judges and Ruth. And we talked about the way things had been set up in the book of Judges and Ruth. And we talked about how the closing phrase in the book of Judges was that there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We lamented the lack of authority and the damage that it did to God's people when there was no authority, when they didn't look to God as their king, when they were looking to someone else, but that other uh, leader and authority wasn't there. And that refrain, there was no king in Israel, is an important one. And it communicates what was going on at that time, what was happening uh, at that time in the nation of Israel. There was no king in Israel, and that, that is brought out because the people wanted a king in Israel. Now God had told them they didn't need a king, that to pursue a king was to somehow in some way to deny his authority, that God would be their king, that he would go before them, that he would fight for them, that you wouldn't need a king to do all the kingly things because God would do all those things for them. You see, God had set set uh, Israel free, that he had given them their land, and he had said, you guys are good, I will be your king. But they said, this is not enough. We want a king we can see. We want a, a king we can touch. We want a, a king that the other nations can come before. We want a king that can do all the things a king is supposed to do. They didn't want God to be their king. They wanted their own king. They wanted one that they could hear. They wanted one that they could put their faith in to be their protector. They demanded a king. And so God gave them what they wanted. Even though he warned them it would be a mistake. They felt like they needed that guy. They felt like they needed that person in charge of their country. They felt like they needed that person to go and fight for them, to be on their side. They needed to be able to see that. Now, before I get too far in this story, I want to take just a second. We are uh, just about to hit the month of May, and we are about to hit crunch time when it comes to presidential politics and presidential elections. We are about to get into really like crazy season whenever it comes to this stuff. And I just want to kind of offer a word of warning that the, the way Israel approached having a king is far too often the exact same way that Christians approach their presidential choice, whichever choice that may be. 
that they need a president to go before them, that they need a president to fight for them, that they need a president that will do all these things that they can look to and that they can say, that guy's got my back. I need that guy. Now, don't misunderstand me. Our vote is important and we should, uh, we should uh, look to find people that we can, that we can uh, hopefully trust or that we can uh, give our vote to. But we don't give our vote in such a way that says, this is the guy that I need for me. This is the guy that I'm willing to compromise everything I believe in so that, so that they can go before me and that they can do these things. Just like Israel, God says, you don't have to have this person. They thought they had to have him. They thought they had to have that king, that they needed that king, that they were insecure and they were powerless without that king. And for too many Christians, that's how they view the White House. That if, 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 if Christians don't have control in the White House, and you can argue which side we're talking about here, uh, honestly, you, 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 can, you can pick a side and argue a lot of different ways. I, does it, it doesn't really matter to me which side we're talking about. But, but the point I want to make is, if you are putting your faith in the White House and the president as the, the one who can secure your faith and who you need to go before you, then you have misplaced your trust and your religion has become politics and is not actually following God. As we enter into the madhouse of the election season, remember that whoever your candidate is, he or she is not Jesus. And never will be Jesus. We don't need them to be our Savior. We don't need them in order to be uh, in a place where we can thrive and we can grow in our godliness. So don't vote as though you, you, you have to give up everything and compromise everything because you need something so desperately. I urge you to, to bathe your, your vote in prayer and to pursue God and to pursue Him. And you cast that vote as one who has uh, hope in God, not hope in a candidate as your Savior. For Israel, they needed the, the king and, and, and they felt like they had to have him. And so God said, all right, fine, you get what you want. And they brought in a guy. And this guy was everything you could want in a king. This guy was made from central casting to be a king. He was tall. He was athletic. He was smart. He came from a good family. He was strong. He was everything that you would, 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 would build if you had the, the Lego pieces to build the perfect king and kind of put them all together. Saul was the guy. And that makes sense, doesn't it? That's what you want to pick. You want to pick the guy who fits the bill. Saul did that. King Saul was exactly what you would want in a king. There's just one problem. King Saul wasn't God's guy. King Saul was, 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 was built out of everything you would want out of a king, except for the fact that God said, I don't think that's the guy that needs to be king. Through a series of events, he loses his, his right and his anointing to be king, and that's what brings us to the house of Jesse, where we were just reading there, to Ruth's grandson. David is summoned out from the field, and as soon as Samuel sees him, he hears from God that this is the one to take over 
for Saul, that this is the one that is, is to, to, to come in and he is, he's the one to, to take over the throne. This youngest one, this one who doesn't fit the bill, this one who no one in central casting would cast as the king because he doesn't look like a king. The one that doesn't even make the cut in the family, let alone in the entire nation of Israel. He doesn't even belong in the family living room to discuss being a king, let alone in the throne room, sitting on the throne with a crown on his head that says, I am the king. Yet, this is God's choice. That is a massive curveball. No one in Israel saw that coming. Even Samuel, when he walked in that day, he didn't see that coming. Even David's own father didn't see that one coming. It just doesn't make any sense that David would be the choice that God would make. Why wouldn't God want to keep someone like Saul in charge? After all, he is the representative for the people of Israel. He is the one that goes before and says, I am here to stand in this place for the people of of God. I am the, the representative before all these nations. You want someone intimidating. You want someone strong. You want a good negotiator. You want someone who can stand up to these other nations. And yet David is the, the choice that God makes. Why wouldn't God want to keep some like someone like Saul in charge? This story is just an example of what Jesus began teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. It's just an example pulled out of the Old Testament that reflects the teaching we see in the New Testament. That God's kingdom, that God's values are very, very different than ours. You know, God, God tells Samuel in that story, he says, don't look on the outward appearance, don't look on the things that you think make up a good king, that Israel think, thinks ma- looks, makes up a good king. Instead, what you need to do is you need to look at the heart, and I'll tell you who the right one is. God's kingdom, God's values, is very, very different than ours. And as Christians, this is what it means for us to lay our wills down, to take up our cross. It's to value what God values more than we value what our culture or what is even ingrained in us to value. Have you ever thought about the way that we talk about things? You ever thought about the way that we, we, we talk about things? Uh, we, we say things like, you know what, I'm just working hard, I'm, I'm doing these things in my job, I'm going to school, I, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I just want to be successful. Or m- maybe this one gets you a little bit more. You know what, I just want to make sure that I give my kids all the things that I didn't have so that they have the opportunity to be successful, so that they have all the tools to be successful in whatever they decide to pursue. I mean, that's a noble thing, right? To try to, for, our, for us to be ambitious to be successful or for us to be uh, servant-hearted in a way that we provide our kids the opportunity to be successful. That's a noble goal. The problem is when we say things like that and we say it in that way, we, we subtly change words out and we start to use words kind of synonymously. And so what happens is that, that we're not saying we want to be successful. What we're saying is we want to be happy. We want our kids to be happy. And we start to equate those two. That success equals happiness. 
The problem is, that's almost never true. It all depends on how you define success. And if we define it according to the world's terms, what you'll find, and you can see this with professional athlete after professional athlete, you can see this with CEOs, you can see this with uh, all kinds of, of, of different people who we would deem to be successful, they will tell you they are not happy. Because what they've been successful at are things that ultimately won't matter. And so what we end up seeing is that we want to be successful and we think successful means happy because we've defined success in the ways that our culture has, not in the way that God has. One of my favorite quotes is from Francis Chan, and I think Francis Chan probably stole it from somebody else too, but uh, that, that my greatest fear is not that I would be a failure, but my greatest fear is that I would succeed in something that doesn't matter. You see, what, what we have to make sure and what we have to continually bring before God is that, that, that we say that we want to be successful and that we define what that means, not based on uh, our culture and our terms, but on his values. Those two words, success and happiness, are not interchangeable. We cannot define success the same way the world does. Because if we do, we'll be in real danger of being successful at things that don't matter at all, in eternity, or, or maybe even distract from the weightier matters of things like eternity. That's not success. It values the wrong things. So church, what do you value? Do you value today and this moment? Do you value the, that definition of success? Or do you value what God values? The choice of David was a failure on every human level. Israel's first king had been a complete flameout. He couldn't hack it. They had failed. God had every right to say, see, I told you so. You didn't need a king. David was a nobody from nowhere doing nothing. He wasn't impressive, nor did he strike fear in the hearts of those who met. Yet God had chosen him for the task at hand. Why? Is it because he knew something about David that said, you know what, David, you're going to be great. I, I can just sense it. I've got this kind of sixth sense where I can kind of just see it in you. Did God just kind of intuitively know something about David that would say, you know what, you're the right guy? Or, or did God know that, you know what, it, it doesn't matter how strong the king is because the strength of the king is tied to the strength of God. And choosing someone like David, it left no doubt who was going to be in charge and responsible for the success of Israel. God was going to be running the show. Israel was going to be great, not because their king was great, but because their God was great. So how about you? What are you pursuing today that you think will make you great? Money, education, power, connections, making a name for yourself, a great career, fitness, health, beauty, a picture-perfect family. 
I mean, there's anything that you can throw in there. Anything will do. Anything that you can say, that makes me successful, that makes me happy, that is the thing that I want. What is it that you're pursuing that you think will make you great? Whatever that thing is, if it's not defined as greatness the same way God does, then it will fall short and you will find that it won't make you happy. Or maybe you're listening and you're saying, that's the problem. I'm not great at anything. I'm I'm not great at anything at all. Nothing makes me great. I'm just ordinary. At best, on a good day, I'm just ordinary. On other days, I'm a total failure or I'm completely uh, dismissed and nobody cares. I'm just a nobody. I'm just a failure. I don't have anything. I don't, there, there's nothing that I can do that anyone would confuse as great. If that's you, then I would say you're in a really good place for God to work with you and work through you. God doesn't need your greatness. God doesn't want your greatness. God says the things that you think make you great don't make you great at all. Instead, I want your weakness. And the curveball for us is that in our weakness, in our futility, in our failure, God will use those weaknesses to show his strength and his glory. Notice, I'm not saying he's going to make you strong. He's not necessarily going to make you brave. He's not necessarily going to make you glorious and great and powerful and all the things that you think you want in order to be great. He's going to show himself off through you. Your anxiety, God can use that. Your, your, your flailing marriage, God can use that. Your broke down car and your empty bank account, God can use that. Wherever you feel the most inadequate is probably a pretty good place for you to start watching to see if God's going to work there. Because he doesn't need your strength. He doesn't need your skills. He doesn't need your brains. He doesn't need your money. But what he asks for is faithfulness and a willingness to follow him. You see, the greater the weakness the greater glory God receives. This is, what, this is what Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. You see, that would have made sense if you were to, to start a new religion. You go after those type of people. The wise, the, the, the powerful, those of noble birth. Those are the ones that give credibility to your religion. Those are the ones that make people say, you know what? Maybe there's something to this. I want to be like one of those guys. But that is not the, 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 the first generation of Christians. That's not what they look like. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to, bring to nothing things that are, 
so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. You see, God doesn't choose us because we bring something good to the table. It's not why he chose David. It's not why he chooses us now. He didn't choose Abraham or the nation of Israel because they showed up and said, look how mighty I am. He went to them and he said, look how weak you are. That's why I'm going to choose you. He was drawn to their weakness. Your sinful heart that has run from God or in truth has rebelled against God, God can and will definitely use that. The greater the weakness, the greater the glory. And the cross is the pinnacle of God meeting us in our weakest moment. You see, in the, in the midst of all this that's been going on in the, the past few days and uh, throughout this it, crazy season uh, that we live in, uh, my weakness seems to be constantly exposed to me over and over and over. Maybe you're, you're in a quarantine and you're in a place where you can just kind of disappear and you can kind of hide and, and your weakness isn't on display, but mine feels like it's on display constantly. I get angry, I get frustrated, I get impatient. Many of you know that we're on about uh, month nine or month ten of dealing with some pretty intense health issues with with, uh, my wife, with Emily. And sometimes it brings out the best in us. Sometimes it's really a a wonderful and and a sweet time. But more often than not, uh, it brings out the worst, especially in me. My weakness feels like it is ever before me. And so maybe that's you too during this season especially as it stretches on, you start to feel your ability to kind of hide your weakness just kind of disappears and, and you become a little more aware of just how weak you are. And here's the thing, sometimes weakness is a neutral thing, like health or, 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 or like finances. Like it's a, it's a morally neutral thing. Like you're just, you're, you're broke or you're sick. It's not a sin to be poor. It's not a sin to be sick. But sometimes that weakness isn't neutral. And the weakness is actually our sinful flesh that constantly uh, craves and pursues sin. That, That constantly has us dealing with our sin before us. And here's the thing, as weak as I feel right now, as weak as I, I feel to be able to, to help out uh, Emily and her sickness, as weak as I, I feel right now in, in trying to figure out how to, to be a pastor and, and, and help people through the middle of a, of a pandemic, as weak as I feel to control anything going on around me in my life, there is nothing that makes me feel weaker than whenever I have to deal with my sin. I have never known weakness like the weakness I I knew when I first realized how much I needed grace. There is no weakness that can compare with that. 
My sin before God is the evidence of my weakest point. It's such a dramatic thing when you talk about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of us. It is is a gulf that that cannot be, be bridged. And He is here and we are far, far, far removed from Him in our weakness and in our sin. I never need help more than in that moment when I am with my sin. Which is why Romans 5 It's such a powerful, wonderful verse for me. It's my favorite in all of Scripture. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait until our worthiness merited his response. He, he, he didn't wait until we were able to display some strength or, or, or something that made people say, you know what, there's something in that guy. I, I see something in him. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play a hunch that maybe this guy's got something, something that's good for my team. No, 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 we had nothing to offer. Nothing that we could bring to the table. No worthiness, no strength. Nothing that would draw God to us. It was our weakest moment, our neediest moment. And it was in that moment that God says, now I'll come to get you. You're mine. I choose you. At just the right time. I love how that says that. At just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And what was the right time? When we needed him the most. When we were the weakest. When we were in our sin. That's the ultimate curveball. That shouldn't be expected at all. Sometimes I think maybe we think it's expected because we've, we've, we've read the Bible and we've heard the story and we, we know about the cross. That's not expected at all. What's expected is that we would be dismissed, punished, and cast out. There's nothing more unexpected than grace. But there's nothing more needed. And that's there for us. That's our curveball, and what a great one it is. What a glorious one it is. That Christ died for us at just the right time. This morning, if if you don't know that part of the story, or or, or maybe if you think that, that that somewhere along the way Christ came and got you because you kind of, you were a pretty good guy. 
Or maybe you're thinking, you know what, God, I know you're going to pick me because I put some good things on the table. I'm a pretty good guy. I've gone to, gone to school. I've got a pretty good family. There's a lot of things I can offer up to you, God. I, it would make sense for me to be on your team. God's saying you're not weak enough. You don't know your sin enough. And what I'm telling you is know your sin. Feel that weakness. And then let God come for you at just the right time. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for grace. A grace that is unexpected. Undeserved, unmerited, and fully unexpected. But a gift that you have offered. a sacrifice that you have made, a penalty that you have paid. Father, thank you that you never waited on my strength, on my goodness, on my worthiness, on anything that I could bring to the table before you came for me. Because I know that you never would have came for me. But instead, in my weakness, you said, now I'll come get you. May we be more aware of that this week. Right now. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.